We're going to read just the first six verses of Revelation chapter 22. And as we read, let's remember that this is the word of God, and so we can trust it completely. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Well, if you uh, have a Bible close to you, let's uh, turn together to Revelation 22, those verses uh, that we read earlier. Uh, Really, 1 to 5. uh, Some translations have 1 to 6 in a section. Some have 1 to 5. We're we're really going to look at the first five verses, I think, uh, tonight, and not really at all of them. I wonder, have you thought much about heaven this week? Um, Some of us have sadly been at uh, funerals uh, this week, and and maybe we have thought about it for that reason. But away from that, have we thought much about heaven? I suspect that we've not thought about it all that much, even though we're sort of thinking about it in these evening services. It's not been at the front of our minds, uh, not maybe in the way that it should have. I'm always... Uh, struck by a little verse in Hebrews 11, where, where all the, the, the great sort of heroes of the faith, uh, looking over the Old Testament sweep of, of the, the story, uh, are described. And there's a, a little verse that says, uh, others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. I'm not sure I know everything that that means, but, but here were some brothers and sisters who were thinking about what lay ahead outside of this life, and it shaped their actions and their living in a very significant way while they were here on earth, enabled them to endure some really difficult, difficult things. And we might think, well, if, if we were in that sort of situation, then we would think about heaven too. But, but I'd want to suggest to you that, that, that we won't think easily about heaven whenever we're under pressure unless we've become accustomed to thinking about it when life is relatively straightforward. So we need to think more about heaven and what God has in store for his children. And we'll be helped in doing that if we turn regularly to what the Bible tells us about what God has in store for us, and we're going to do that again tonight. This is the last chapter of Revelation that we're into. We're getting this glimpse of heaven. You remember that 
what has happened here. This is heaven not as it is now, but after the great final day of judgment, we saw that back in chapter 20. All people are judged by the Lord. There's division. There's welcome and rejection. And then chapter 21 begins to tell us about heaven, and we see God in the midst of his people. And his people are described as a great city, a massive city, which is a in the dimensions of a cube, uh, 1,500 miles long and wide and high. And we say that this is an expanded version of the other cube in the Bible, the, the, the most holy place right at the heart of the, the temple or the tabernacle, and which was, of course, the focus of God's dwelling on earth. So here is this picture of God in the midst of all his people. And really, this description of heaven then continues into these early verses of chapter 22 uh, before this sort of concluding postscript that we look at all being well in a few weeks. And this is a marvelous little section that that pulls on all sorts of threads that run right through the Bible. And I hope it's going to encourage our hearts tonight. One of the things I I love to do uh, is I, I, I love the opportunity of being in London. I I, I wouldn't like to live there, but I love visiting. And and you can spot me as a tourist because I'm the guy who's walking about with a wee rucksack in the back in from the country. And and I'm I'm looking up everywhere and and I'm just looking up at all these big buildings and so on. And everybody else who's used to it is is sitting with their head in their phone or whatever it might be. And I'm looking all around. And and if, if if we go somewhere special we find that our gaze is just moving from one thing to the next. And here we are. We've been invited into somewhere incredibly special. And what I want us to do is, is just allow our eyes, as it were, to focus on, on, on four things. There's so many things that we could look at here, but, but just four things that we're going to look at on this incredible tour of glory. A river, uh, it's so simple, we haven't put them on the slide, but there's a river, there's a tree, there's a curse, or there's no curse, actually, and there's a face. River, tree, curse, face. River, first of all, look at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Now, we said that these verses pull on all these little threads that run right through the Bible, and that's true of this idea of a, a flowing river or streams of living water. Jesus spoke of that. You remember the woman at the well. Psalm 46 speaks of a river in the city of God. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. All sorts of threads that run through the Bible. But there's, there's one really clear one. It's in Ezekiel uh, 47. Let's just uh, flick back to that, and, and uh, we'll have a quick uh, look at that. Uh, let me give you a page number. It's uh, page 880, 880, Ezekiel 47, and Ezekiel sees this vision of a river coming out of the temple, temple being the earthly focus of the dwelling place of God. So page 880, if you've got a pew Bible, Ezekiel 47. Uh, I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to try and summarize it. The man, this is in a vision, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, the temple faced east. 
The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the other gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. And what happens is that uh, he, he leads him through this water and the water gets deeper and deeper. It's measured out in, in great swathes and it's deeper. It's up to his uh, knees, it's up to his chest and so on. Then it's deep enough to swim in. And uh, then he, he eventually gets to verse 7, when I arrived there uh, in the bank of the river, I, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region, goes down to the Arabah where it enters the sea. That's the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the waters there become fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live everywhere the water flows. And then we go down uh, to the bottom, uh, verse 12, fruit trees um, of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. They're Leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows Then Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Now you can see the, the, the real parallels there are between that and what we see in Revelation. So Ezekiel was really looking forward to what was fulfilled in uh, heaven. And, and you see, this is what God does. This picture of Ezekiel really fills this out, doesn't it? God is at work and when God is at work, his presence brings life. It's a life-giving stream. Many people have seen this river as a picture of God's blessings seen in salvation. But I think we can go even further than that and see that, that this is a, a picture of the Holy Spirit and his work, giving life through the Spirit, as it's represented here. Jesus often tied the, the work of the Spirit to uh, flowing streams. Uh, John 7, he spoke about those who come to him, and he said, from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. By this, he spoke of the Spirit. So you see, you, 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 we're on this little tour of heaven, and, and uh, our eyes settle on the river, and we find that the river is the Spirit of God, His life-giving work, flowing from the Father and the Son, as, as one of the old creeds says. And the river is crystal clear, speaking of His purity, and it brings life. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, life flowing around them, right at the center of heaven. Well, your, your eyes drift on a little bit, and you see then a tree the tree of life, verse 2, on each side of the river uh, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Again, you can see Ezekiel there. And this is a little bit hard to visualize at first. How can a tree be on both banks of the river? And of course, uh, Revelation is not really supposed to be precise in its imagery at points, but, but some people have thought that actually this is really a reference to an orchard, many trees that it was in Ezekiel, actually. And uh, there are 12 crops probably linked to the, the 12 tribes, tribes uh, supplying all the needs of the people of God. And, and, and amazingly, you don't have to wait until August to go and get your crop. You, 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 uh, you, can, you can go every month. There, there's constant supply from what God is doing. Now, as you hear about the tree of life, you, you, you not only now, I hope, think about Ezekiel, but you remember that this is not the first time that we've seen uh, this tree referred to. And, and here's where we need to talk about Eden, because 
the threads that this passage pulls on go right through the Bible, right back to the Garden of Eden. Actually, in Eden, there is also a river that flows out of Eden. So we could have spoken about Eden already. But let's try and set the scene a little bit, because in Eden, of course, there is a tree of life. Adam and Eve are created. They are put in the garden, the Garden of Eden. It is perfect. There is communion with God. There is endless provision. There is fulfilling work to do. There is fellowship with God and with each other. And in the garden, uh, there is a tree. There are a number of trees. There are two that are drawn attention to. First of all, there is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which they are told they must not eat. Adam is on probation, as it were. But then there is also a tree called the tree of life. And believers have had slightly different approaches as to what this tree represents. Was it somehow what was sustaining them and, and preserving them and, and, and uh, causing them in some way to, to be uh, immortal? Was it some symbolic of the fact that God himself creates and, and brings life? Was it something that once they had proved themselves, or if they would prove themselves to be obedient to God's commands, they would have been invited to eat from so that they might have lived forever with God? All sorts of different approaches taken uh, to this tree. But in any case, what we find is that when they do sin, and we'll say more about that in a moment, when they do sin, God banishes them from the garden and he blocks the way to that particular tree, to, to the tree of life. Genesis 2 says, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, maybe you read that and you think, well, that's tough, but it's fair. But actually, we can say more than that. It's actually a mercy because you can see the tone of what God is saying here is that had they eaten then from the tree of life, whatever that looked like, they would somehow have been locked into their rebellion and not able to be redeemed. So, so they, are, they are banished from the garden so that they might be able to be redeemed. So Eden... Is, is lost in the great flow of the Bible's story. Fellowship with God is lost in that way. That place of fellowship is lost. Uh, but now, at the end of the Bible, it looks like Eden is restored. There is a, a life-giving river. There is a tree of life, maybe even an orchard of life. And now you notice that, that, that John is not kept away from it by angels and flaming swords, no, he's, he's given a tour. He's brought in. He, and we find that this tree is in the midst of God's people. So, so, so it's not just that Eden is restored. It's really enhanced. Because now it's, it's a garden and it's a city. These two things come together. The city comes down from heaven to a new earth, a new Eden. Eden in Jerusalem, the original garden, the original city. And they point to this new garden city, which is the final home of the people of God. It's Eden enhanced. And it's better in other ways, too. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve talk with God. But here they are also in the presence of the Lamb who's on the throne. So they not only have fellowship with the Father, but they, 
they had this wonder of having been saved by the Lamb. Their fellowship is, is therefore deeper and, and more wonderful. So we, we sing about this, don't we? Savior of Calvary, costliest victory, darkness defeated, Eden restored. Now, you see, maybe you're, you're in the habit of reading Genesis 2 and, and thinking about the Garden of Eden and thinking, oh, wouldn't that have been wonderful? A perfect relationship, a, 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 a perfect relationships with God, perfect relationships with each other, perfect world to exist in. How wonderful. Well, that paradise has been lost, but we are on our way to an even better one, even more marvelous, even restored and multiplied. And the expectation of that future uh, bliss, that future Eden is right the way through the Bible, whether it's in the pictures of the trees clapping their hands at the end or the fact that the tabernacle and the temple were, were decorated with, with plants and, and fruit as if to say, you're going to meet God again in the garden. Notice that it says that the, 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 the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Now, again, we could sort of wonder about that. How, how would we need healing if we're in this perfect place where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain? Well, it's, it's not that that's there. It's that here is a constant reminder of the healing that has been brought to the nations. And the nations here are the people of God. So, so it's saying constantly, we've been forgiven this is perhaps a little bit speculative, but there may be things in heaven that we might forget. You know, in, in 10,000 years, we might, we might say to each other, hey, do you remember 2020? Do you remember people, remember we used to get sick? You, I've got this vague memory of being in a hospital. Poof. Somebody else says, yeah, that, that's sort of coming back to me. I, I can hardly remember that. There may be things we forget. But we will never forget that we are forgiven children. And the leaves for the healing of the nations will constantly remind us that. Well, we're, we're keeping looking as, as we glance around heaven. Everything looks so different. And, and, and we, we sort of wonder, well, how is it all so, so incredibly different? And, and then we, we hear this explanation. There's no curse. Verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. Now, here again, great big thread running right through the Scriptures. Let's think about the, the whole story again of, of the early chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve in this perfect setting in the garden with only one restriction. They're not to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit from that tree. But they do. And what happens as they do that, well, we find this from Genesis 3, one of the most key chapters in the Bible. First of all, God, we find, comes looking for them. So they're hiding from him. And God comes and seeks them out. And he speaks to them a question, where are you? Even though, of course, he knows full well. And here, God, right at the beginning, establishes a pattern with sinful human beings, hiding human beings, they're not looking for him, but he is looking for them. And he is speaking to them who don't want to speak to him. 
and they admit what they have done, and they shift the blame, and so on. And then God pronounces a series of, of curses. It's clear that, that they begin to die. They have been warned that they're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And now God says at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and to, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The curse of, of death, you see, is upon them. The serpent, he is cursed. He's and the curse points towards the gospel. We've looked at that before. Now, it doesn't really tell us that, that, that God directly curses Adam and Eve, but, but there are clearly consequences for their sin laid out in, in Genesis 3. Eve will have pain in childbearing. And Adam, as we've just read, will find that the ground is cursed so that he will only get it to produce things for him by the sweat of his brow. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then God clothes them. He dispenses with their useless efforts of self-generated fig leaves and so on. He clothes them in skins, perhaps the, 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 or presumably the first death that they, 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 they see that the creature gives its life so that Adam and Eve might be clothed all pointing to the shed blood that would be necessary to clothe them in righteousness. And, and, and it's important to understand that in cursing Adam and Eve, or at least in cursing their experience, that that is part of God's love for them. Now, that's maybe hard for us to get our heads around. But it, it might have been. No point in, 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 in speculating, but, 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 but there's a sense in which we could see that it might have been possible for Adam and Eve to have remained in a world that was not cursed. So that was, that was they were fallen, but, but they were living in a world that was comfortable and easy for them. What would have happened in that situation? They would have journeyed towards their death with ease. And perhaps as they did that, they would not have thought about God. One person says this, a chap called Mark Cortez. The cursing of creation is God's way of providing indications that things are not how they're supposed to be. Signs of a deeper problem. The cursing of creation powerfully declares that humanity has rejected the God of creation and stands guilty before him, alienated from the source of all that is good. The symptoms are tragic, but the alternative is worse. Not being constantly reminded that we have fallen away from the living God. So you see, in kindness, God allows Adam and Eve to feel the effects of sin so that they might know they really need a Savior from sin. We feel that, don't we? When you feel this week, you turn on the news headlines and you read of a, a stabbing or a murder or an atrocity or a, almost anything. And you say, this world is not how it should be. God is allowing you to be reminded that you need a Savior. When you have that, that sense that, that, that everything you put your hand to never quite works out the way you want it to, 
You've got to put such effort in to get something out. There's such frustration in just day-to-day life. God is allowing you graciously to see. You need a Savior. You see, the effects of sin are not something that we've been insulated from. And, and that's a mercy as far as God is concerned. So, so that's how things are in Eden. The curse is there all around. But now we follow the thread right the way through the Scriptures to Revelation, and we see there's no curse. No, no accursed thing enters glory. God's people are perfect. They're in a perfect place with this perfect God, and they themselves perfect. Now, that thread connects a lot of things along the way, and especially it, it runs through the cross. The Bible tells us about Jesus in Galatians 3.13 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, amazingly here, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You think about it. Isn't the Bible amazing the way it hangs together? Adam and Eve take from a tree and the curse falls. Jesus is nailed to a tree and the curse is taken so that we might be in glory with the tree of life free from the curse. You see? No curse. Jesus has reversed it all. That's why we will praise him. That's why you need him. Do do you know what? If you're here tonight and and you're thinking, like, I know I'm not a Christian, but I really like to think I'm getting to heaven. Do you see in some ways how complex it is? Do you see how much had to be done so that we might be welcomed? How are you going to do that without Jesus? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. No curse. Last thing, the face. Throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now we really don't have time to do this justice But again, so many threads running through the Scriptures. How do we get near to God? You know, I I love the story of Moses. Exodus 33, all the chaos has happened with the golden calf and so on. And Moses knows God. He's the intercessor. He knows God like, like no one else in all of the earth at that time. And he asks to see God's glory. And, and, And God, it's as if God is is saying to him, oh, Moses, I'll give you as much as I possibly can. I will make, he says, all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy on whom I show mercy. But, God says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. All the way through the scriptures, we, we don't get to see God's face we would just be consumed in an instant. But now, in heaven, they will see his face. 
the old saints call this the, the beatific vision, a vision that brings joy. The Bible tells us that this is what lies ahead. Again, it, it points to this all the way through. First Corinthians 13, Paul says, we see in a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Peter read, First John as our call to worship. We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now, it's, it sort of implies, I think, that this is the very pinnacle of the heavenly experience. Maybe even it's, it's sort of what transforms us. We will really know God in that moment. We will really see that we are His children, that He is our Father. It seems to be implied with that next phrase about His name being on our foreheads. We will know that we belong. If you're anything like me and you're a Christian, there are times that, you, that, that, that thought comes into your head often. Oh, I really, really need the Lord, but I do, I do belong, don't, don't I? This is a world in which doubts are never far away. But, but we will see His face and we will know that we belong. He is eternally gazing on the Son. The Son eternally gazing on the Father. We are swept in to that gaze. Now, we will see His face if we're Christians. We... we we now live before his face. We, we know that that gaze awaits us, but now we live knowing that his face is turned towards us in grace, in mercy, in love. That's marvelously reassuring. It's also motivating, isn't it? Because we, we want to live with that conscious sense of his gaze upon us at all times before the face of God. So, we see these things that lie in heaven. A river, a tree, no curse, his face. And we go back to those Christians that we mentioned earlier in Hebrews 11 who endured torture because they were conscious of what lay ahead. They were saying, Lord, this is really, really hard. But I know if I'm persevering with you, there's better to come. Help me to go. Help me to keep going. And we know more than they do. And we've seen tonight that we look forward to a river, a tree, no curse, and his face. May this help you and me endure as we seek to serve him. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we, we can't really get our heads around what this is going to be like. Our, our words begin to, to fail us. Our, our minds can't hold together these threads that, 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 that stretch back over thousands of years and into the very mind and heart of God. But Lord, we thank you that, that it's going to be wonderful. And so we pray 
that we will find our minds easily and regularly set on things above that we might live for you all the better tonight and tomorrow and in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.